service. Volume.com is a free platform with live stream performances, concert broadcasts, and a video archive that includes performances by Brothers Osborne, Stone Temple Pilots, Dirks Bentley, Weezer, and more. Shred with Shifty Time. I'm Chris Shiflett, and we have a fantastic show for you today. Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is here to break down the waiting off Hard Promises. You know it, you love it. Who doesn't like Mike Campbell's guitar playing? Are you out of your mind? Best, one of the most influential guitar players ever in the history of guitar playing. But first, let's talk a little bit about where you can get ad-free versions of Shred with Shifty. You know you can get them over on volume.com slash Shifty. And not just ad-free versions of the show, but exclusive content from all the episodes that we only post at volume.com. So get over there and check it out. And as always, make sure you follow me on social media. Make sure you film yourself learning this solo and every solo we've broken down all season long and post it on your socials and tag us that hashtag shred with shifty and all that jazz follow me and all the different accounts blah 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 hey are you in the uk or ireland if you are don't you want to come see my solo tour at the end of march i bet you do and tickets are on sale now so get on over to chrisshifflettmusic.com Pick yourself up a pair or a couple of pairs. Buy some for your grandma. You know what I mean? There's tickets left. Let's get them sold. Come on, chrisshifflettmusic.com. And I will see you in the UK and in Ireland for some sausage rolls very soon. Very soon. Let's jump into today's episode. Mike Campbell, guitar player extraordinaire, one of the all-time most influential players. I can't tell you how often people say, do something like a Mike Campbell kind of thing when I'm like in the studio working on a record. I'm sure that happens to just about everybody. I think uh, his guitar playing has just influenced generation after generation. And today we are breaking down his wonderful solo from The Waiting off the Hard Promises record. It's a classic and you're going to love it. Here we go. This is Mike Campbell on Shred with Shifty. What do you remember about the day you recorded this guitar solo? Well, I don't think we spent a lot of time on it. I remember cutting the track at Sound City, which you're familiar with. And I remember sure. playing bass on the track. And what's curious about that guitar part, uh, the... Uh, that bit... Actually, I played it on the bass during the track at the end. I go, do, 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 do. And I liked the line. So when I went to do the guitar overdub, I put that on the guitar with the octave. So that kind of came around backwards, that, that lick. Uh, so I just remember 
Not much. Uh, just doing it pretty quick. We didn't spend a lot of time on that one. Like, did you guys record the whole thing live in the room? Like, in same day, did you record the basic tracks the same? Yeah. I'm trying to remember uh, if I, I think I played the bass. Ron wasn't there that day. I played the bass uh, live with Tom and Stan and Ben. We got the basic track, and then I put some guitars on it. Or a guitar. Do you remember what specifically what guitar amp pedal combination you were using that well day. there would have been no pedals at that time uh the amps uh <laughs> i remember being at sound city during uh that album we had every amp in the world lined up across the room i mean every amp you can imagine all in a line and they could play this one move the mic play that one play that one play that. so i don't remember what we ended up on it's probably a twin or some kind of fender is what we settled on and it was uh as i remember it was a. Uh, Les Paul, a white one that I had just gotten at a pawn shop. And uh, mm. it was, uh, that's, you know, it's really fuzzy. It was so long ago, but I I don't have a specific memory of doing it, but I know that that was not one we labor, labored over. It went pretty quick. I always associated the video, like the guitar in the video as being the one that you actually played on the song, which was that cool Rickenbacker yeah. that you were playing in, in the video for it. And so like, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting thing like to think about like like that totally like informed my sense of what a guitar like when I think of that Rickenbacker I think of that song and and I think that that's the way that Rickenbacker is supposed to sound <laughs> you know what I mean it's weird like, it's all showbiz Chris it's all showbiz babe <laughs> well the truth is uh, the octave guitar thing which I also did on American Girl was because I didn't have a twelve string handy and I wanted that kind of overtone. But uh, we used uh, that little Rickenbacker, which I got for 120 bucks back in the day, which Tom is on the cover of Torpedoes, actually. Uh, I used it in the video just because it looked cool. I hate that video. I think I look like a total idiot in that video, but the song is good. <laughs> it's such a great time capsule. I was watching it this morning yeah, before yeah. I headed over here. It's like, it just, it looks like Santa Monica Place did at that time. Yeah. That's a mall reference. I don't know if you know the reference. Well, you know, we... We, I don't know about you, but I didn't start out wanting to be a video guy. And when we had to, when MTV came <laughs> along, it's like, okay, you got to do a video. So we go down and, and do our best. But it's not something that, uh, a, a couple of them were fun. The waiting was just kind of, you know, us miming to the song. It was no, nothing special, really. I didn't like my boots. It's funny. <laughs> I think I think of this. I have the same relationship to your guitar solo in um, "You Got Lucky." We're in the video, you know that post-apocalyptic video. You're playing that Gretsch. Yeah, so that to was my, just for in looks. My, and maybe it really was a Gretsch. I don't know, but yeah, but like in my mind, that's what a Gretsch is supposed to sound it like. It was a Japanese Strat that showed up that afternoon that I'd never played before. Uh, but in the video, I mean, a Gretsch looks cooler, you know. Generally speaking, how do you build a solo in the studio? And how did you build this one? Did you did you kind of have it worked out before you guys went in, or did no. you just do it on the fly? I did not have it worked out, that one. I don't usually have them worked out. But once we got into it, um, I kind of got a starting point, you know, and then I had an ending. And in the middle, I just played the melody that he was singing. And so when I got stuck in the middle of what to play, I just thought, well, what, is he, what are the notes he's singing there? And I picked them out on the guitar. And that's basically how it works. I started out, you know, with a typical scream and a few licks. And then uh, the melody in the middle is for what he's singing. Don't 
let it get you, babe. You know, I kind of copied the melody there. And then the ending was just a, you know, a drone. Just something to lift up into the chorus, you know. And that was, I mean, once I got in there, I, I found an intro and sorted out the middle and had an ending. And then I had a bit of a composition. Then we went for the take, you know. So some of it may have been off the cuff, but I think I probably did a few off the cuff versions and then sorted out what I wanted it to be and then did the proper take on that one. I mean, you're so well known as the guy that plays the perfect part to the song, like the perfect solo in context of what the song is doing uh, with the perfect guitar and the perfect amp and the perfect tone. That's kind of amazing to hear that, 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 uh, that these are musical moments that you're just kind of working up in the moment. Well, as you know, as a guitar player, if you work it out too much, it'll sound uh, stiff. And most of the stuff on my records, um, I like to come in fresh and capture, as I'm discovering what it is, get that on tape, that there's some uh, electricity in that moment. I think the listener can hear, you know, that you're discovering it as they're discovering it at the same time. So I like to, you know, kind of grab them on the fly and kind of go stream of consciousness and hope that I land something. And then once I get, you know, sometimes that first take is fine. Other times I'll go, well, that's a good idea, but I can refine it a little bit and play it again. As you know, you do this too. But I like to keep as much of the discovery of the bit and while I'm figuring it out, ooh, that's exciting, you know, and if you can keep that on the tape, if you go back and play it again, you know what you're doing. It's going to be the right notes, but it may not have that electricity of, of uh, spontaneity. So that's what I always try to do. All right, let's back up a little bit. How old were you when you started playing guitar? I was 16. I wanted a guitar really bad. I couldn't afford one. My mom got a $15 acoustic harmony F-hole that was unplayable, but I didn't know. You know, I thought, well, wow, these guys, the strings are way up here. How do they do it? You know, I, my fingers would bleed learning how to play on that thing. So around 16, and then uh, my dad sent me a Japanese guitar from Okinawa. He was stationed over there, and it was kind of like a little Agoya. It played a little better. And then when I got to Gainesville, I ended up getting the Firebird and then eventually a Stratocaster. So, I, you know, as I got more uh, money, I would get a nicer guitar. I'm still doing that. Do you <laughs> like, still have that Firebird? Like, what year would that have been that you got that Firebird? And how vintage is it now? Well, it's gone, uh, unfortunately. It uh, it was a (laughs) three-pickup red Firebird, Firebird 12, I guess they call them. I don't know. And I got it at a pawn shop. It was so funny. We went up to Birmingham, and I didn't have a good guitar. I had that Japanese guitar. Went into a pawn shop. He said, do you have any uh, guitars? He said, well, there's one in the back, but you wouldn't like it. And we said, why? She said, it's really ugly. I'll bring it out anyway. So I opened it up as that red Firebird. You know, she didn't know what it was. It was about a hundred bucks. <laughs> and I used that right up until we were in the studio in LA. And then I left it on a folding chair and Tom came in, didn't see it and sat on it and broke the neck off. Oh, no way. Yeah. And I sent it to get repaired. It was never the same. So it's, it's uh, probably firewood at this point. Uh, but it's funny because I'm now playing this white Firebird, which I also got at a pawn shop. And I actually like Firebirds. Uh, but that was my first guitar. And then I eventually got a Strat. And, long, you know, a long story with each guitar, but I won't go deeply into it. But that's how I got started. Did you take a lot of lessons? None. None. My lessons would be going over to a friend's house. And you go, hey, do you know this Bob Dylan song? 
Yeah, okay, teach me that. You know, that would be my guitar lesson. I never had proper guitar lessons. I learned mostly off records, you know, just listen and figure it out. Really? Yeah. Well, like, when did do you remember the moment you learned your first lead guitar lick? Like the first moment you felt like I'm a lead guitar player now? Well, let me back up a little bit. I never had guitar lessons. When I was in elementary school, my parents forced me to take accordion lessons. And I did learn. I only did that for a few months, but I learned, you know, chords and a little bit of basic theory of music from that. But when I picked up the guitar, it was all ear taught. The first solo I ever learned was. Uh, one of those Chuck Berry things. I just love Chuck Berry. And somebody asked me this. How did you figure it out? And I don't know. I just listened to it and went, where is it? Oh, he's doing that and putting. And I just, I don't know, picked it up by ear. But that was my first inspiration on lead guitar was Chuck Berry, absolutely. Besides Chuck Berry, who were the other uh, guitar players you were listening to at that time that made you want to be a lead guitar player? Well, you're talking about the 60s, you know, the heyday of, of, of Renaissance guitar music. Um, of course, I love I loved the Beach Boys, but I really loved George Harrison, Keith Richards, the Kinks, the Hollies, the Zombies, the Animals, all those guitar players, uh, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page a little later on. You know, and of course, the ultimate was Jimi Hendrix later on. But those were my influences. And those are the those people that I, I tried to learn off their records and emulate what they were doing, you know. And Mike Bloomfield, he was a huge influence. I had that uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band first album with Mike Bloomfield on it. And I would slow the records down back in the day, you know, from 33 to 16. And then that's how I figured out, how's he getting that note? He's always, oh, he's bending it. Okay, so I learned that way, you know, trial and error. But he was a big influence. I love his playing. What's the first thing you play when you pick up a guitar? What's like your guitar store lick? That is a good question. And I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking to my wife. and you know, I used to always just like pick up the guitar and... Start playing lead. Nowadays... I don't practice anymore. I pick up the guitar and on my own. I start writing a song. You know, it's usually a chord now. And it, I, I, once again, I, I draw from a stream of consciousness blind what comes through me. And it's usually a sequence of chords or a, a groove. And, and then I'm deep, I'm into writing. So I don't think about the lead guitar at the, at the beginning like I used to. And what... um like, what do you like your guitar to feel like? What are you looking for in a guitar? Like a string gauge, uh, action, the, the neck? Like, what's your preference? I don't have a whole, a whole lot of preference about it, as long as it's comfortable and it has a good sound. Uh, I put the same gauge strings, uh, which are 10s, I think, on all my guitars. So that the string gauge is always the same. And uh, I just like it to feel comfortable and and sound good. You know, every guitar... Even the cheaper ones have one spot on the guitar that's really, really good sounding. I try to find that one spot where that guitar speaks. You know, a Fender or a Gibson, they're going to sound good on anywhere up the neck. But some of the more boutique guitars will have like one section that's really sweet and the rest of it's crappy sounding. So I like the comfort and uh, I like it to be easy to play. I don't want to have to struggle too hard. Um, and, uh, you know, good sound, basically. If the sound is good, I can usually tune into it. How early did you start writing songs? Like, at what point did you sort of make that shift from, like, you're just noodling around on chords, like, wait a minute, 
I got to remember that. That's a song. Well, right away, right away, early on, I was doodling with writing. It were horrible things. And then as, uh, as the years went on, I started um, trying to train that muscle in my brain to try harder to write better stuff, you know, and work, and, and work on it more instead of just, you know, half-ass, you know, songs. And uh, so pretty much as soon as I had learned a few chords on the guitar, you know, I might listen to a, a Beatles song or a Bob Dylan song and start learning it and then maybe get it backwards or wrong. I go, oh, well, maybe I'll make my own song out of that, you know. I've always kind of done that from the beginning. It's just gotten more and more refined. I mean, what was that workflow like during the years of being in the Heartbreakers? Would you just, would you, were you writing like uh, the sort of the musical side of it and then, and then handing it off to Tom to, to kind of bang it into, into, into something? Yeah, okay. I didn't write lyrics until uh, much later on, uh, which I do now. And I really enjoy that. But early on, it was just music. You know, I was, I had a talent for, or a gift or a, a knack was a better word, I guess for stringing rhythms and chords together that sounded like a song, you know, and structuring it in such a way that a writer could listen to it and go and sing along with it. And it would all make sense, you know, so I would make music tracks or demos. And I was lucky enough to have Tom in my band. I say, Hey, you know, do you like this? And he would come back the next day and here's one call you wreck me off your music or whatever, you know? So I was just jazzed. I got so excited when he'd bring a song back to me. And so I, then I wanted to just keep doing it more and more and get better at it. You know, it's a thrill, you know, writing, as you know, is it's when it works out, it's like, um, it, it triggers dopamine in your brain or something. I don't know, but you get so high from it when it works out and it sounds good to you. Oh, it came yeah. out of nowhere. All of a sudden there's just, there's nothing up. better than going into the studio with an idea. And then you come out 12 hours later and it's this completely different thing. And it's so much better than it sounded in your bedroom. You know, it's, yeah. that's the best. Yeah. That's my uh, addiction is writing. You know, it's, it's a it's a religious kind of thing, really. I, I don't want to talk about it too much because it's mysterious and uh, it has its own uh, energy. It comes to you when it wants to, and you just have to be open to take it. You know, it's not always there when you want it, but uh, I love that process. And I know a lot of writers say the same thing. It's 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 magic, and it really is. And if you're lucky enough to come up with something that. It turns into a hit record or whatever, and lots of people like it, then that's just a blessing. Absolutely. Uh, let's let's get into the solo. Let's okay. um, let's break this thing down. I've always heard this this solo in particular, but a lot of your leads as having these great overtones that kind of ring. You know, you're sort of jangling, letting certain notes blend over other notes, and there's a lot of that in this one. So I'm I'm excited to see how you actually played it versus how I've worked it out in my head. Um, so real quick, the song is in the key of D and we're in standard tuning and it starts over the, like the verse pattern chord starts over the A chord, moving around the A, G and the D. So can you show me how you play that initial lick? Okay. If I can remember it, let me see. Uh... Once again, Chuck Berry, right, right away. So I start with this. <laughs> and then the, the melody line that Tom sings over that B minor chord. Uh -huh. 
So the ending is like, they used to yeah. call that the bagpipes part with the open drone underneath it. You know, it's just an extending. Right. And into the chorus. It's, it's funny because it, referencing the video for the song again, this is another one of those moments where in the video, it looks like you're playing it in a different spot to my eyes. You know what I mean? So in, in, in working it out, it never made sense well, to me. So I'm, I'm glad to see that that's what it is. Well, it was, yeah. a, you know, it was, a, it was a, a, a lip sync. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah, hey, la da 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 Where right. my hands are, it doesn't matter. You can't hear me anyway. That's probably what it was. So you were stuck. <laughs> right. I did that uh. just to fuck people up. <laughs> no. Well, it fucked me up. You got me. Um, hey, let's let's go back to the very beginning of that. So I, I I was hearing it different, and I realize now in watching you do it that I was totally overcomplicating it. So I was going. So you're actually going on that last part. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. At the twi- Then it goes up into the melody, yeah. I love when you go up into those single notes. It's like, um, it's a perfect display of your vibrato. Vibrato is really important. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I really worked always on my vibrato. Uh, and I think most guitar players don't focus so much on it. But it really is what makes um, your playing unique. If you really find your vibrato in the right feel and the right speed of the vibrato, depending on the tempo of the song, and where to use vibrato and where not. Like on that, it's like. See, oh wait. Uh. Right there is that on that note. Yeah. You made me turn down. I got no tone. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, so you notice I <laughs> no, use... Turn, turn back up. No, turn no, no. back up where you want to be. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> you know what I meant to do. Uh, but the vibrato, you notice I choose to only use it on those couple of notes. Um, yeah. Well, it's when you when you slip it in there, that's the part that makes it cry. You know what I mean? It adds like this emotional heft to it. It's the emotion and, and it's where it sounds most like a voice. So, uh, you're singing it as opposed to just like... Uh, I could just go... Those are the notes, but if you put the vibrato in it, So when the vibrato comes in, it makes a statement. And if you put it in the right place, it can be very emotional, you know? I love your use of like that, not just bending up, but the way you bend down out of phrases too. It's so great. It's just, I'd like to think of it as a voice, you know, how would, how would the singer sing it, you know? And if you think of it like a voice singing, it'll usually tell you where you put, should put vibrato or not, you know? So, um, yeah, vibrato is, is, is really important. Even from the first record, like Breakdown, you know? Uh, you know, the vibrato is really important. I, I'm... <laughs> I'm struggling this morning, but you get the idea. Totally. Yeah, it sounds great on my end. Um, all right. Now, this next bit, I have, uh, uh, in the interest of full disclosure here, I have bit this so many times in guitar solos. And I was I was tripping because the way I heard it, again, doesn't line up with how it l- appears that you're playing it in some of the videos that I watch. So I always heard it like... 
Like you're up around there, but I think you're actually playing it somewhere around here. Oh, uh, where are we at? first and the fifth okay and i hit uh, both strings when i can yeah so that's what i'm Love doing it. right there i like those kind of voicings That's it. And then That's it. for this last, great, great. And then for the last one, you kind of already demonstrated, but, but run it for me again. Is that just you're just uh, just moving up the scale with the with the high it's E? It's over the A chord. You're moving up yeah. the scale on the B string. Yeah. And it starts with a hammer. Uh. That's it. Perfect. Yeah. You're hired. <laughs> 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 I want to get hired as your apprentice. I'll just stand in the back in the shadows and I'll listen every show and strum an acoustic. Yeah, that's a technique I use on a lot of stuff. The band used to make fun of me. Always doing the bagpipes again, you know. But it's that drone, like yeah. even on like a listen to her heart. Yeah. I like the melody up high on the B string with the open E string ringing underneath. It makes it sound fuller. And that was kind of a part of our sound, you know. It became a part of our uh, uh, tone that we use a lot. Probably overused it, but I, I like that. Do you remember on this song, like, what's what's given it? If you if you said you were playing a Les Paul through a, some, like, a Fender combo or something, what's given it the bite? Are you just driving that on the amp? Just driving the amp. I mean, we didn't have pedals back then. Uh, we weren't using any pedals. We just turned the amp up, tried to find a sweet spot. They would spend hours on it sometimes. It used to drive me nuts. But they would eventually find the right combination of room mic and crunch. It's all about the gain. You, know, you get the treble kind of normal. And you can get more treble by getting the gain. If you go too far, it mushes out. So it's finding that sweet spot in there, in the gain. And that's where the tone is. So with with uh, when at the end of the solo it comes back to a chorus and then there's that little break where you, you throw one more lick in there and the way I heard it was like something like this. Is that in the in the ballpark? How do you do? It? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. There's another cool bit in the song that you didn't mention. Like, it's a, it's a really good example of how Tom and I would play off each other. Like, he came in with a song. Okay, so when it got to the chorus, instead of me doubling him, I would play. I would put an ar arpeggio above his guitar to make it sound like one big guitar. And then also in the second half of the chorus, I would go just a drone, like. And then. Yeah. But that drone is another uh, trick we used to use a lot. Uh, you know, you can make a chorus sound big just by doing those two notes.
That it raises the question, you never know, you know, unless you're in the room for these things. But is that like, are we really hearing a lot of Tom's guitar on those records? I always wondered that, like what kind of player he it's, was. Uh, well, he's the rhythm. He, the rhythm guitar is, is is filling out the track. Yeah, my stuff is over the top. Sometimes my stuff is, is loud because it's it's a, a bit. But he's he's keeping a solid, steady, full rhythm underneath everything. That was the secret of, of our groove was Tom's rhythm, the way he sang against his own hand, you know. Oh, interesting. Was he tracking those vocals live, too? Uh, we'd always sing a live vocal. A lot of times we'd go back and make it better. But always he'll have a live vocal yeah. to play along to, yeah. Okay, so now that we've run through this whole, uh, all the, the bits and bobs, could you be so kind as to play the solo from start to finish for the listener at home to get the full effect? <laughs> now the pressure's on. But yeah, I'll be happy to try to do that. But uh, with my little dinky sound, but uh, you can turn up. There's, turn another, up. there's another part at the end that's pretty cool that we didn't talk about. Um, oh, okay. At the end, we go say, and then Tom goes, and then I did this thing up here. Which led into. So that's a cool little part. Um, okay, so the solo. All right, yeah. So where where is that exactly? This is a D on, on the frets. Where are you fretting like, it? Uh, okay. You kind of just mute it. Gotcha. Yeah, I like those kind of things. So the solo, it comes down off the bridge, off the F sharp. keeping all those bit kind of things out of it, you know. Yeah. Am I right in thinking maybe in in the later years? I mean, you like I said, you're known as the guy that plays exactly the perfect part for the song. To my ear maybe like when you get into like Mojo era, your guitar solo has become a little more freewheeling. Um and maybe maybe less party and more solo. You're right. It was more into I had the 59 less Paul, so we were kind of stretching out yeah. and a little more bluesy uh, uh blues of phrases as opposed to pop type bits like the waiting is very pop right. like you know you yeah. would be tempted to go on the waiting but that's not what we're about it was more like the drone and the melody right. but yeah mojo and that kind of stuff we kind of got more into let the guitar play you know like mike bloomfield here or whatever you know just kind of go off and you know that was fun. I enjoyed those records too. I mean, was that was that? I I guess my 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 question would be like knowing that you always had, and it's not like you didn't ever take burning leads in the you know in the early days too. There, there's 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 some of that in those records too. But um, knowing that you had that in your back pocket all that time, it's it's interesting. Like, was that ever um, that thing of like the perfect tone and the perfect part and all that? Was that did, did that ever weigh heavy on you? 
You know, that every time had to be this perfect part that the mm. whole world was going to sing along to, no, you know? nothing ever weighed heavy. I just tried it to serve the song, you know, like, um, yeah, uh, it restraint. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like I, when I first started playing guitar, I was into Chuck Berry, Mike Bloomfield and Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, which is a lot of blues phrases and, and, you know, a lot of, we used to call it rip boying kind of guitar. Uh, but, and when Tom would bring a song in, I wouldn't hear that stuff in his songs, hardly ever, you know. Like at the end of Running Down a Dream, yeah. we took a few liberties and it let it go on a little bit. And later on in Mojo and Hypnotic Eye, it became a little less poppy in a way. So that I was able to pull from those those things I had in my back pocket, like you said, and you know, explore some of those types of playing that I don't normally do uh, throughout the career. But, but. You know, aside from the, the blues players, I really love George Harrison and um, Carl Wilson and uh, Keith Richards. You know, I like guitar parts that come in with a melody. It's perfect. Get out of the way. Let the singer come in now and do it. And don't just showboat all over the whole thing. You know, I just I never really liked that kind yeah. of music. So I never felt like it was a heavy weight. It's just that's what I wanted to do. You know, it's what sounded best. Hey, you're listening to Shred with Shifty. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Would you have time to answer a few fan questions? Oh, sure. I'd love to. And by a few, I mean like 800 or so. Um, I'll try to, I'll try to, <laughs> to edit them out a little bit. All right, here. Mike Meyer wants to know, you can only have one guitar, one amp, and one pedal for a show. What will you be using? You may have just answered that question moments ago, but uh, yeah. Well, if I had to do that, I would use my Fender Broadcaster, but I don't take it on the road anymore. But my Fender Broadcaster, which was my first uh, good guitar from the first two albums and on through, and uh, uh, a Princeton, you know, and a, and a deluxe, uh, maybe an overdrive pedal if I needed it. But with those amps, you don't really need overdrive if you if you play real good. <laughs> good to know. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ditch my overdrive pedals. <laughs> well, I like. I mean, um, I do use them. And on, on stage, sometimes it's nice to. What's good about the pedal is you can have a nice clean tone, and then rather than have to go turn your amp up for the solo, you can just hit the pedal for more gain. I mostly use it for gain. Uh, you know, a little delay now and then is nice. I used to have an Echoplex in the early days. I love that. But pretty simple. And did you used to tour with, an, with, with AC30s? Because there were some people asking. I was considered you a Vox guy. We started out, we finished our first record. We, got a, we were in the, uh, at the office one day, and somebody said, they're selling Vox amps out in the valley. So we drove out to the valley, and we bought a whole wall of Super, super Beetles, which are like 100-watt, loud-ass, tall amps, you know? And we toured with those yeah. for two years or so. I don't know how Tom sang over those, but he did. And then as years went on, I, I discovered it was an AC30 that's, that's a similar but not quite as loud. I went down to that for several, like a decade or so, and that was good. And then when I hit, actually, when I started playing with my little band in the clubs, I hit on the Princeton and Deluxe combination, and then I've been using that ever since because it's, it's got a Easier good tone. Easier to fit in the car, too, when you're driving to the bar. Oh, that's true, yeah. Although I don't, I don't, I don't carry them anymore. My back hurts. <laughs> but yeah, 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 they are easier. To, I mean, I had a basement. I like the blonde basements for a while. Like at the Fillmore, I had a blonde basement, which was really great. But they're just kind of loud. I mm -hmm. like having an amp that sounds really good. But if you need to talk to the other guy in the band, you can talk to him. You know, it's not just blaring. 
And truthfully, I think in a, if you got a good mixer and a good PA, that little lamp, you know, like Neil Young, that little lamp's going to sound huge out front if it's mic'd up properly. And if you got a sure. big ass amp that's bleeding yeah. all over the stage, it just creates problems for everybody. You know? Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta admit, I um, and this sounds ridiculous because you know we've all been doing this for a long time, but I just turned my amps down on stage to a reasonable vol- volume for the first time ever, I think, for this current tour cycle and it's so much better why did not I, I guess i should have listened to all those years when sound men were like turn your fucking amp down yeah there's something to it yeah. well like i said if, if you got one or two guitars or three uh whatever up on stage blasting it goes into the bass mic it goes all into the drums all into the vocal mics and it's just like a hard for the guy to, to get a handle on it out front and the tone may not be that great out front I mean, you might think it sounds good because it's loud to you, but the guy in the back of the room might just be hearing a, a big echo. But if you've got a nice, right. really quality sound with a good mic and a good mixer, he can put it up in the PA right where it's just right, and it sticks through the mix, and everybody on stage can breathe, you know? <laughs> so that's I learned that, too, the hard way. For years, I was overcompensating because I was wearing earplugs, not in-ear monitors, and I think I was just like, I still I just made my amp twice as loud to compensate. Uh, Luke Tierney wants to know, how do you shroup slide playing, playing in standard tuning? Well, you just learn how to do it. You know, you uh, slide, if you're playing open tuning, which most people, it's, it's going to be Delta bluesy kind of. If you're playing in standard tuning, uh, think of George Harrison. If you're playing in standard tuning, you learn to, to I play with it on my little finger. And with your other fingers, you can mute the strings that aren't being you know, played. So the only string that's sounding is the one that the slide is touching. And you know the scales, so you can find your melodies within the chords. Um, and with open tuning, it's a whole new, all the, all the scales are different. You got to learn it, you know. But if you're playing Delta Blues, it's great. But for pop music, and standard tuning is pretty easy. You're just looking for the melody, you know, and then dampen the strings that, that are making weird noises. That's, it's slide playing generally, um, I, and I'm not good at it. And I think it's really like, it's a confidence thing too. Like for me, like when I, when I'm playing slide loud on stage, I just feel like I'm like, it's like I'm, I'm a house of cards. I start overthinking it and then I start, you know, not, uh, uh, landing the notes. Right. And then it's just, it just goes from bad to worse. I don't know. I, I feel like one of these days I got to sit down and do like a whole tour playing nothing but slide guitar just to get comfortable with it. Yeah. And the slide guitar, you use, you use your eyes a little bit. But you have to play to your ear because it's, you know, you're in between the frets. Like, right. And the vibrato is essential on the slide. So you kind of get to where you are generally with your eyes, but you use your ear to go to the pitch. And the pitch is essential and the vibrato. But if you just practice with it a little bit, you know, it comes pretty quick. But slide is great because it really emulates the voice. Uh, you know. Do you set your guitars up different? Like, do you have like a slide guitar that with the action super high? No, or do you I just, just learned how to play with the way it is, you know. I mean, you don't want your strings too short, but I don't have them too, too short anyway. I have them kind of, you know, up off the neck where you can grab them a little bit. So the slide's never been an issue for me. Interesting. 
Peter Finestone asks, how did you hook up with Bad Religion? Which, by the way, I didn't know that you had played on that, uh, the solo in that song, Hollywood is Burning, on a Bad Religion album. Yeah. Peter Finestone, by the way, is the original drummer for Bad Religion. Um, so you would think that he could have just asked his former bandmates, but he's asking us now here today. <laughs> well, uh, Brett Gurowitz, <laughs> who runs Epitaph Records, uh, I was sitting next to him. I went to see a band called uh, Rancid. It was on his label. I was sitting next to him and he had just been to see the Heartbreakers um, at the Hollywood Bowl. And we had done a surf instrumental and he was going on how much he liked that. And he said, do you ever want to do an album of surf music? And I said, well, he said, if you do it, I'll put it out. So I went home that weekend and recorded the record (laughs) and gave it to him. And we became friends through that experience. The Blue Stingrays, it's called. And uh, then he just called me one day and said that we're down at at, uh, Studio City and we wondering if he'd play a guitar solo on it. So I took my broadcaster down and played on there. And uh, I like Bad Religion. They have some good songs. So basically through Brett, he was just a friend of mine, yeah. Okay. I mean, like when you guys were first starting out in the Heartbreakers, I know you were, you were touring a lot in the UK and kind of like blew up there first. Like, and that would have been around the time that, you know, it's just after right around the same time that punk rock was kind of exploding. Like, did you listen to those bands at the time? Like the Clash and the Pistols, Ramones, like were, were you interacting with them at all? We did not interact with them, except I'll tell you one funny story. But we went over to England in 1977 when the Sex Pistols were all the rage in the clash, but the sex pistols had just broke and uh, they were all over the news. We went over there to tour. We opened for Nils Lofgren, but when we checked into the hotel, uh, we were sitting in the lobby with Stan Lynch uh, and uh, uh, Johnny Rotten walks through with like three journalists running behind him with taking everything he said down, you know, (laughs) and he walked past us and he looked over and he goes, American pigs. (laughs) And then he went, walked up to the bar and Stan said, oh, really? And Dan went over there and got into him in his face. Did you say that again? But these journalists are like, ooh. He goes, oh, I didn't mean anything. He could totally wimped out. <laughs> <laughs> so much for Johnny Rodden, although I love Johnny Rodden. I think he's a great artist. But uh, that, yeah, we were around for the punk scene. Um, we did not, aside from that encounter, I didn't rub shoulders with any of the other uh, band. We did a, a few dates with the Ramones in America, and they were cool, mm. really cool. Um, and we played CBGBs once, but there was none of the punk at that. By that point, the punk scene was already petering out a little bit. But we were around yeah. that time, and that music—you um, know—the energy of it and the the spirit of it definitely influenced us. Sure, I, I remember in the early days of, of the Heartbreakers, you guys kind of being marketed, at least in America, as uh, kind of new wave or new wave adjacent or what you know, it's kind of kind of thing. Yeah, well, there, I remember Tom did an interview when we went to England. And he says, and the guy said, "So you guys are a punk band," and he he goes, "You call me a punk, I'll cut you." which kind of put it all in perspective yeah they tried new labels new wave um emo emo whatever you know all that all (laughs) those labels (laughs) Uh, i got i got one last question for you um and thank you for for being so generous with your time today you've been great but uh kyle swafford wants to know how hard was it to be the backing band for bob dylan it wasn't hard at all once you accept that anarchy is the norm. Okay, Bob, mm. I am so blessed to have done that, going around the world with him, with the Heartbreakers. It was amazing experience. Uh, 
And he's my favorite songwriter of all time and a really sweet guy to a really sweet guy. Uh, but he's enigmatic, you know, and he, he likes to upset the cart. So playing with him, we had to really watch him because sometimes he would change the key or the rhythm on a song that we'd rehearsed a certain way. Well, we rehearsed it that way, but today it's going to be a waltz and it's going to be in B flat instead of G. Like, oh shit, you know, and you got to, you got to kind of, it's like heads up ball with him. But I know why he does that because it keeps everybody in the moment, you know. But uh, it wasn't hard, but it was really, really inspiring and really fun, mostly. And didn't, didn't, am I remembering this right? Or I might be confusing it with John Prime, but did you guys back him up on a record at one point uh, around that did, time? We uh, did a few I- singles here and there. I played on a, one or two of his records here and there. The Heartbreakers did a single, I think Band of the Hand, a song called Band of the Hand, which was for a movie. Um, but, and there was one song uh, that we had a Heartbreakers track for that he came in and sang and took for his record. Uh, Got My Mind Made Up, it was called. But uh, we never uh, really set up full Heartbreakers and Bob in the studio at the same time. Now, you know, mm-hmm. Bob wrote uh, on that song, Jamming Me, Bob wrote, Tom, Bob and Tom wrote the words and I wrote the music to that song. So indirectly, I did write a song with Bob. <laughs> Although he wasn't there. Oh, wow. <laughs> was that like a Traveling Wilburys? Uh, no, it was before that. It was before leftover that. Leftover or something? Or it was jamming me. That. It was okay. a few yeah. years before that, a few albums before that. And I had the track yeah. and gave it to Tom. And he called me up one day and said, I'm, I'm downtown at a hotel and Bob's here. And uh, we've written some words to your track. And it turned out to be jamming me. So, you know, Bob oh, is just, uh, he's, a, he's a, a true genius and my biggest inspiration. I have to pick one. Well, Mike, thank you so much for doing this today, man. You have been great. Exceeded all expectations. That's what I try to do. <laughs> Exceed all expectations. <laughs> I keep telling my wife that, That's but right. she's not you, buying it. <laughs> <laughs> you played the perfect guitar with the perfect part and the perfect tone, and it was all great. So I thank you. Well, thanks for overlooking little mistakes, but I haven't played that in quite a while. So <laughs> thank you. It was fun. Yeah, I like I like your work, uh, Chris, and... Uh, I wish you the best, and I hope you get to see the knobs someday. I think you'd like them. Absolutely, man. I'm coming in September for home, for sure. Okay. Oh, yeah, that was Mike Campbell on Shred with Shifty. How great is that, man? Feel and tone for days. Uh, make sure you check out the Dirty Knobs wherever they're playing, whenever they're playing. And he's got uh, a couple of Dirty Knobs records out, so go check that stuff out. Support your local scene. This is Chris Shiflett signing off for Shred with Shifty. See you in a couple weeks. Adios, amigos. Shred with Shifty is created and hosted by me, Chris Shiflett, and produced in partnership with Double Elvis, Volume.com, and Premier Guitar. If you're digging the show, make sure you hit that follow or subscribe button so you get our new episodes when they come out every other week. Shred with Shifty is produced by Jason Shadrick. Our executive producers are Brady Sadler and Jake Brennan for Double Elvis. Engineering support by Matt Tahaney and Matt Bowden. Our video editors are Dan DeStefano and Addison Savan. Special thanks to Chris Peterson, Greg Necron, and the entire Volume.com crew. Adios, amigos.